the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Rebuild America or make America great again. Certainly all valid observations and sentiments, but perhaps a bit naive to think that we can simply turn back the hands of time. Perhaps we should better reimagine America. Apply many of the successful business techniques that built and industrialized our nation that can direct us to a 21st century American renaissance, politically, economically, socially. Joining me today in studio is the founder of reimagineamerica.org, Joyce Cordy. And Joyce, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. We hear a lot about rethinking, rebuilding, redoing. You're suggesting, though, perhaps in some ways a bit of a different tract, and that is to reimagine our nation. I think you have to. I don't think um, we, we sometimes talk about a living constitution. We're a living, breathing nation where who would have thought 50 years ago that we could carry a computer in our hands, that we would be ubiquitously connected. That's a different world. And Washington, Washington doesn't understand that world. Sacramento can barely turn it on. So what we need to do is to reimagine America, starting with reimagining a smaller, more efficient, effective 21st century government, a government that is um, more practical, more pragmatic, that is less bureaucratic. Um, And that's what Reimagine America is about. I rip ideas from the headlines that, and then tear them apart, analyze them, put them back together in a way that can empower Americans to restore sensible citizen-centric government by drowning out the special interests. My aim is always to be provocative, but pragmatic, Possible, practical, post-partisan, and absolutely not incendiary. When you walk away from either reading or listening to uh, a podcast on Reimagine America, I want you to be able to shake your head yay or nay. You can take that blog that I've written and send it with your own thoughts directly to your representative. You can get engaged in a community in which we have you know, commentary Uh, This is our country. This is our government, government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And we've got to rip it back from the politicians who are professionals and from the bureaucracy. Where, in your opinion, Joyce, did you think uh, we started to go off the rails? Because for the longest time, as you quote Lincoln there, we did understand that our government was trickle up. It was the people up to the leadership in the White House, the State House, City Hall. There was a sense that at the end of the day, our political leaders still feared the ballot box and the power of the voter. 
I get a growing sense, and I think the current economic climate demonstrates that this is a sense that's shared by many Americans, that uh, neither Sacramento nor Washington, D.C. Are, are any longer afraid of the people. And so I have to wonder, where did the transition, where, where was the, the, the beginning point of this, in, in your viewpoint, that began to take us off the rails and head from of, by, and for the people ground up to the top political and, and governance to a nation now that, that is getting to look more and more like England and the whole reason why we escaped and said, uh-uh, we don't want kings anymore. Well, we could spend the rest of the day talking about that. But I think the place that we began to lose, we as citizens began to lose uh, control was in the beginning of the 20th century when Woodrow Wilson was frustrated by the way the mechanics of government as the nation began to grow into um, an ec- first an economic exporting power um, and, and under Wilson for the first time exerted major influence um, over Europe from a military and, and diplomatic point of view. Uh, and Mr. Wilson in his, Professor Wilson we should say, in his, in his infinite wisdom said, you know, those business people, they're so much more efficient Maybe we could bring in some expertise to help guide the government. And thus was born the bureaucracy. And today, it is those unelected, anonymous, unaccountable bureaucrats who run the country. You you think of private business... Even corporate America, there's accountability. You have to answer to the board of directors, the stockholders, to your customers. If people don't like your product or the way you do your business, they will vote with their feet. Uh, you might see Wells Fargo feeling a bit of that. It's up amazing. Soon. I was just going to say to you, I haven't noticed that the shareholders are demanding the head yet of, of the CEO of Wells Fargo. Although it's not a bad idea. But at least there's a sense of accountability. And yet in, in the, the form of bureaucracy that we have here today... There is that disconnect from the way that well, business works. And that's one of the things, you know, if, if you, you ask the question, how did it happen? Well, World War II happened, and in World War II, this bureaucracy, which was a small mushroom, became a portobello mushroom. Mm-hmm. And it grew, and it grew, and but the U.S. economy was growing. People were coming back from war. They were going to college. The economy was growing. People were getting – their lives were were going along swimmingly and so they didn't quite notice okay and in that same period of time post-world war ii we began to change the types of people that we elected to represent us from our neighbors to professional politicians so today it's that politician pays his mortgage by telling you as a voter what you want to hear And the consequence of that in what has now emerged in the 21st century as a multilingual, multicultural country, no longer the homogenous nation that we were in 1945, what has happened is that increasingly people have felt uh, disassociated from that government, either because they're come from places where government is empowered or because we feel like we're not heard. So, you know, if, if, you, if you're puzzled by the current uh, set of, of political choices that we are faced with in November, this is a result of an increasingly disillusioned uh, and disengaged population, which further empowers that bureaucracy. And if you've noticed, 
in the last eight years, we've largely been governed, uh, actually in the last couple of decades, it's been, we've been increasingly governed by executive order and Supreme Court decisions, mm-hmm. and less and less by Congress. And it was Congress, closest to the people, the representatives, who our founding fathers sought uh, saw as the linchpin of this Republican democra- democracy. It's not a rep- it is a representative democracy, not a direct democracy. And that's you know, in fact, our founding fathers, every one of them, cautioned against political factionism and political parties. They had seen enough of that in England. Okay, so we are our. I, I, our acquiescence to the concept that two political parties are going to choose who's going to be the most powerful single human being on earth should scare us all. And the irony is what we ran from in the 16 and 1700s to come here and build a new nation, a new government, a new way of thinking. We've actually down through the last 40, 50 years, slowly recobbled and rebuilt, haven't we? Yes, indeed. <laughs> we have. But it's not too late. And the sense of frustration demonstrated by the voters today, as you suggest, Joyce, um, the current political candidates for both major parties, um, perhaps more of a reflection on that sense of frustration of business as usual. And as you say, this growth, the swelling of government, it's almost like a cancer that grows quietly silently the tumor inside that you can't see yet it's there all the time and it's slowly literally sucking the life out of the patient and i have to wonder if that analogy fits government today and if so is this patient meaning america american exceptionalism our way of very way of life is it potentially at risk if we continue to head down this direction absolutely completely in four years, if we don't drastically change the course of government, we will have an economy in which our debt and our gross domestic product are equal. At that point, think of yourself as being a banker anywhere in the world and ask me and tell me that you would lend us money. We are within four to six years of not being able to maintain the existing entitlement system. Our, our military, forget rebuilding it, maintaining it. We've simply got to get honest with ourselves, with each other, with our neighbors, and say we are the most resourceful, capable, innovative people on earth. So we've got to take back our government. We've got to be willing to pay our fair share. We've got to stop asking government to do things it cannot do. And we've got to stop pandering to the most aggrieved voices among us and do what is what our founding fathers always did, that which is best for the, the most common man. That is, we need to build consensus. We have politicians whose uh, very livelihood is dependent on just the opposite. Let's take a time out. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Joyce Cordy is with us today in studio from Reimagine America. More information, by the way, on the web at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. A brief time out. Back with more as Lifeline continues. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Joyce Cordy is with us today in studio, founder of reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. And Joyce, just before the break, you were commenting about some of the economic turmoil that this country is in. Americans, I think, for the most part, learned a very valuable lesson 2007, 2008, when the economy imploded. We suddenly realized that the sense of overborrowing, overspending was hurting our own economic pocketbooks. We saw foreclosures all across the country. In fact, uh, the percentage of Americans that now find the American dream of the, the picket fence and the home in their name with no mortgage to pay uh, further and further out of reach. And yet, ironically, as Americans realized we have to be careful about living beyond our means, borrowing beyond our means, the federal government, apparently out of that exercise, took away just the opposite lesson, and that is borrow. And when you're done borrowing, borrow some more, and then borrow even more. And when you can't borrow anymore, well, let's lower the interest rates to absolutely nothing so that we don't put ourselves into bankruptcy paying back the money that we've borrowed. And the irony is we now find ourselves with the largest federal deficit in history that's almost doubled in just the last eight years. And there is no sense of discipline in sight, quite frankly, from either political party to stop and say, wait a minute, at some point... At some time, we are going to have to look at paying back all of this money. Well, there's a certain kind of irony in in uh, in this, and that is that that unaccountable, unelected, anonymous bureaucracy and their political bedfellows are all planning on these rich retirements based on um, their years of service and their and their government pensions that are going to disappear right along with your savings and your social security if we don't correct the problem now. I agree with you, Craig, that we've doubled the national debt in the last four years, but in the last eight years. But I'm not going to blame that entirely on Barack Obama. Um, in fact, I'm going to say that Barack Obama at least had the smarts in 2009 to say, ooh, I think we need to attack the deficit. At the point that Bush left the White House, the deficit was about 35% of GDP. Now, you can blame him or not blame him. That's not the argument I want to have um, for the um, – liar loan society we were living in that led us to the bank, um, uh, to the recession of 2009. The fact of the matter is that um, the Simpson-Bowles Commission was put together by Obama with the specific mission to figure out how to balance the budget and get the debt tsunami that everybody knew was coming under control. He made one fatal mistake. Uh, he uh, said that the um, the report had to be agreed to in his executive order by three-quarters of the uh, participating members from both parties and from outside government uh, for it to be forced onto Congress. There has been one vote on, um, on the report, which was really pretty mo- measured, moderate, and, and attainable. And that went down in the House before the 2010 election, about 300 to 38. Don't quote me exactly on those numbers. I do remember there were 38 um, votes for it. Um, and, and so we can blame our politicians, but the day of reckoning is upon us. In 2022, uh, Social Security will, have to, will, will be bankrupt. 
Um, there are bunches of reasons for that, and you can blame some of those on the bureaucracy. But we are at a pivotal moment, which makes the choice we face on November 8th both extraordinarily important and, sadly, the worst possible set of choices we could have. And, and that's pivotal at a variety of levels, is it not, Joyce? And I ask that question because I think about, and you suggested this earlier, we have over the last mm, perhaps uh, two decades seen a greater degree of governance of our nation coming out of the pen of the president through executive orders or out of the Supreme Court than we really have out of the body charged with the responsibility of creating laws, and that's Congress. And so then this election coming up in November um, is pivotal, too, because the role that the Supreme Court has played in the shaping of law, not in the deciding whether it's constitutional or not, but rather in the shaping of law, um, and, and therefore the appointees to that court, and we know that Scalia is one, but there are, I think, perhaps up to three others. There are four others four that others. are over 80. So the next president has within his or her power the ability to shape not only American policy but American destiny for generations to come based on what those appointments may look like. Oh, you are so right. But I don't have confidence personally that either um, of the two leading candidates are going to look for people who are, um, like Scalia, interpreters of the Constitution and law rather than lawmakers. And, and Craig, you make the most important point about how pivotal this election is. Although my concern goes even further than the Supreme Court, my concern goes to the very heart of the matter, which is in a nation that potentially reaches bankruptcy, what happens to democracy? Mm. You know, there's a, a relationship between economics and freedom. And ironically, and, and, in, in history, there's never been an example that we can draw from to say, well, when that happens, when that bankruptcy takes place, this is what's left of democracy. So we would, we, we're kind of in the Petri dish for that, aren't we? Oh, no, I don't think so. There are some examples. Oh? How did Hitler come to power? Hmm. Have you looked at Venezuela lately? Yeah, good point there, too. At one time, was one of the richest nations in South America. Look at the natural resources they have. Mm -hmm. And their middle class is eaten once a day. Let's talk about what you're doing with Reimagine America and what you're hoping to accomplish, particularly heading into this November election. Well, um, like I said, I want to be provocative because I want you to go vote. I don't care who you vote for. There are four candidates, slates of candidates on the ballot, not two. Um, I don't care who you vote for. I do care that you vote. I mean, one of the things, what, what Reimagine America does, we don't really talk politics in the way that we're talking politics right now. I grab issues from the headlines, that being one, the need for an infrastructure bank being another, guns, um, NAFTA, um, just the Veterans Administration. We were talking off the air earlier, immigration and illegal immigration. Yes, and and what the, the consequences of that are. In fact, what does the 14th Amendment really say about 
uh, so-called um, birthright citizenship? And, and what, what should we be doing in terms of um, understanding uh, the consequences of a laissez-faire immigration policy? But what, Im- what, we, what I talk about are the issues, all right? I try to – I'm an analyst. By, by, by profession, um, I'm a uh, business analyst. I'm a, uh, an MBA. Um, and, and so what I do is I try to take the issue apart – and put it back together again simply, and then give you some ideas, some, some maybe we could fix it this way, maybe we could fix it that way, uh, some pragmatic and possible solutions. And what I hope to do is in five minutes, ten minutes that it takes to write, to read a blog or listen to a podcast, I want to see, I want you to be intrigued. I want you to become sometimes angry, sometimes curious. Go find out more for yourself. But I want you to vote. I want you to communicate with your elected representatives. And we try to make that easy for you at Reimagine. And we want to build a community of people who who believe in the promise of America. Um, so that's kind of what where we where we come from. Um, we have an email list. Uh, if you subscribe, I promise you won't be spammed uh, because I hate spam. Um and I fight it hard in my own world. And and you'll get once a month, we're going to tell you what we did last month, what we're going to do this month. I'll give you a teaser. I'm going to write a piece on Colin Kaepernick and what he's trying to do in terms of uh, what he sees as an unjust society. Um, I And I think those are, those are the elements. If we look at 62% of Americans have said in recent polls that they would like to have other choices in this presidential election. Well, uh, that's a passive position. Ladies and gentlemen, how did we get here? We got here because 28.5% of us bothered to go to the polls in the primary with more than 20 candidates vying for the Republican and Democratic nominations. 28% of us 14.5% of the Democrats and 14% of the Republicans bothered to go to the polls. That means 9% of us nominated Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and now and Gary Johnson and Jill Stein. And now we're sorry. So come November, uh, I'd love it if you'd come to reimagineamerica.org, all one word, and Download our voter scorecard. It's yours. It's completely private. I'm never going to have any way to see how you fill it out. But it's an opportunity for you to look at all four candidates, give you all the resources to get really smart about their positions. You can look at them side by side, objectively, and make a decision by the numbers. And bottom line, if you want to save America, you've got to vote. And at the end of the day, we all get the kind of government that we deserve. Information available again on the web at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. Our thanks to Joyce Cordy for being with us today in studio. Thank you so much, Joyce. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All of us from time to time have struggled with within our Christian walk, and that is hearing the voice of God. Um, we are told in John 10 and 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
And for all of us that say, gee, I, I just wish I could hear God's voice more distinctly in life. It would be great if there was the loud, thundering, booming voice out of heaven that shakes you to your innermost being. And yet more often than not, when God speaks, he speaks with that still, small voice. Why is that exactly? Well, our next guest has written a book on the very topic called Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere, newly published by Kriegel Publications. And its author, our guest today, he is the founding director of Kids of the Heart, author of a number of other best-selling books, including Is Sunday School Destroying Our Kids? Samuel Williamson. Great to have you on the program. Hi, Craig. Thanks very much for, welcome, for welcoming me. I really appreciate it. It would honest. be great if God spoke in this loud, thundering, booming voice that we could know instantly, aha, there is the voice of God instructing me and making the right choices and decisions along life's highway. But in fact, God chooses other methodology. We know certainly that he can speak to us through his word. He can speak to us through others. But that sense of hearing that still, small voice directly inform ourselves, that seems to be elusive for a lot of Christians. Why is that? I think it is elusive, but I think part of the reason, Craig, is because people have this expectation that God only speaks to, you know, the high and mighty, the saints, you know, you know, uh, St. Francis of Assisi or Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. And I think it's a false expectation because I think Scripture is very clear when you look at all the heroes of the faith and, and, their, and their foibles. I, I think it's very clear that God speaks to us because of his greatness and not because of our greatness. And we can have a confidence because his greatness is so great and our greatness is so small. But he, but he speaks to us because of his greatness. All right. So toward that end, then, um, it, it, part of it then has to do with our sense of, of, of perspective on our relationship. If God is speaking to us in and out of his greatness, uh, that would also require me to understand the nature of or the balance of the relationship that I have with God, would it not? It absolutely does. And, you know, the Scripture is filled with metaphors that God himself uses to teach us about our relationship with him. And he says that we are the sheep, he is the shepherd. He says that we are the servants, he is the master. We're the subjects, he is the king. But it also says we are the children, he is the father. You know, it breathtakingly intimately, he says we are the spouse and he is the bridegroom. But every one of these metaphors is a human relationship. And, you know, Craig, the essence of relationship, if you think of your, uh, of your family, of your spouse, of your friends, the essence of relationship is communication, and it's two-way communication. And I think when we read Scripture, Scripture overflows with the idea of God wanting to speak to us, wanting us to recognize His voice. It's, it's the essence of Christianity, a relationship with God. And I think God promises and mm, invites us to have a, a, a communicative, a, a, a conversational relationship with Him. All right, now let's talk about that because that suggests, as you talk about relationship, and anybody I think with with half a mind understands that in order for there to be any success in a relationship, there needs to be that sense of give and take, and that's true of marriage relationships. It's true if you want to get along with uh, with your siblings or get along with your uh, your offspring. Uh, but with that said, it, it it's kind of a curiosity in that uh, so often when we 
we think about conversation with God, what we really think about or engage in is monologue. And yet what God wants is dialogues. It's not just a matter of, of God hearing from us and usually our laundry list of all the things that we want or our complaints, but then hearing back from God in return. And I think a lot of people find getting into that place where we have a sense that it's not a monologue, but rather a dialogue with God, that seems to be elusive because it requires upon us as well to be listening as well as talking. Absolutely, Craig. Absolutely. And I would say that the few times that we especially want to hear him is the big times of decisions in our life. Like, you know, should I become a doctor or a lawyer or a business person? Should I become a radio host? You know, or should I marry this person or that person? I think that we're, we typically mostly hope for God for the major decisions of our life. But, Craig, I don't know about anything about your relationship with your father or your parents. But, but let me ask you a question of your fondest memory of your parents. Uh, you know, if you can think back of your whole life, was it times that they lectured to you or was it times that they just talked to you? Oh, I think it's very clear. I mean, all of us remembering our, our childhood years recall a lot of lectures. Uh, and yet, as, as profound as those moments <laughs> might have been, uh, my, my dad, who, uh, who went to be with the Lord, I still, at 8 o'clock on Sunday evenings, pause... And there's that sense of, of uh, that gap, because yeah. Yeah. while we talk throughout the week at various times, uh, 8 o'clock Sunday evening seemed to be the time when the week was over with, the weekend was over with, and we had a chance to get on the phone for a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it took, and just dialogue, just converse back and forth, and he'd tell his stories, and I would tell mine, and, and I, I cherish those moments probably more so than the lectures. <laughs> of course, absolutely, and mine's the same way. My dad and I, you know, high school might have been a little tougher, but, I mean, I, for, for, for 30 years, my dad and I had a wonderful conversational relationship, and, and that's what I remember, and even with my wife, you know, my wife and I, we, we went on our 30th anniversary to Italy a few years ago. But really, the, the heart and soul of our relationship is when we just sit after dinner and have a cup of coffee and talk together. And it's not even, you know, earth-shattering discussions. It's just normal discussions. And I believe this is what God wants for his people. In fact, how are we going to recognize God's voice in, in, in the storm of a terrible decision if we haven't learned to recognize his voice in the calm wind of a, you know, a, an evening breeze? Mm. We, we really need to recognize God's voice in a conversation if we're going to learn to recognize his voice in those very desperate times when we have to make a hard decision. There is a reason why, and, and God certainly in his infinite power could choose to use the loud, thundering voice from the heavens, as we all uh, sort of think of, you know, via our experience in the movies. And yet God, I think, purposefully has chosen to instead speak through, as we see articulated in Scripture, through the still, small voice. And I want to ask you why you think that is and what we can learn from that when we come back to more of our conversation. Samuel Williamson with us today. The book, Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere. The new book, by the way, newly published by Kriegel Publications. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as you can order directly through Samuel's website at beliefsoftheheart.com. A brief time out. Back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
We are back to our conversation, and Samuel Williamson, our guest today, his new book, Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere. Now, Samuel, God being God, he can choose to communicate by any means he desires. We'll recall a time when he chose to communicate through a burning bush, as uh, Moses had the experience. Uh, we, we know that he could open up the heavens with a thunderous voice, but instead, for the most part, for most believers, um, rather than the loud, thundering voice that we would know as it shook us to our very core that it was clearly the voice of God, instead God chooses to speak in that that still small voice, as Scripture tells us. Why is that? Is that is that? It's got to be. Pr- God is a very purposeful God. There's got to be a reason behind that. I, I think there's two reasons, Craig. And I think the first is we're, we're all familiar with the passage in First Kings. I think it's 19, but it might be 20 where God speaks to Elijah out of a still small voice. But the background of that is Elijah has just been involved in one of the greatest miracles God does in the Old Testament. You know, there's this big contest between the prophet of Baal and the prophet of God, Elijah. And Elijah builds this, you know, he puts, he puts together an altar and he puts together the wood on it, he puts a sacrifice on it, and God sends a fiery bolt down from heaven, burns up the sacrifice and the wood and the water and the stones and even the earth. And nobody changes. I mean, Elijah is expecting the people to rise up against Ahab and Jezebel. You know, if not rise up, at least he's expecting some, some, some protesters out front saying, we want the Lord, you know, we want the Lord. But nothing happens. And, and Elijah becomes terribly depressed, and he goes down to Mount Sinai. And that's where, it's very interesting, God says, an earthquake came by, but there was no. But God was not in the earthquake. A whirlwind came by, and God was not in the earthquake. In the whirlwind, and a fire came by, and God was not in the fire. And the thing that's so funny is that when God spoke to Moses, He spoke out of the fiery bush. We spoke out of fire. When God spoke on Mount Sinai to the people of Israel, He spoke out of an earthquake. And when God spoke to Job, He did speak out of a whirlwind. So it's not that God doesn't speak in those things. But I think the deliberate contrast with this huge spectacular miracle and not changing people's hearts is part of God's point when he finally says, and then God spoke in a still small voice. I don't think the spectacular changes us, Craig. I mean, I wish I could say if I had something spectacular would change me, but I really think it's the still, small, quiet, conversational voice of God every day that changes my heart. And, and I would think the big miracles do, but you know, Jesus did all kinds of miracles and the Pharisees didn't change their minds. And, and so I, I really do think God is saying there, there's a part of us humans, maybe us humans in the Western world especially, there's a part of us that wants the spectacular and the miraculous. And I believe in the spectacular and miraculous. Please don't misunderstand me. But I think the thing that changes my heart is when I sit in my chair and I hear God say, you know, Sam, I think you were ignoring your wife. I think you should go repent to her. And it's a quiet, calm voice that has a steady assurance in his voice. And so I think God really, I think God has an, has an invitation. So my first reason that God speaks out of the still small voice instead of the spectacular is I think that's the way humans work. I would say the second reason is I think God likes us to seek him. And sometimes when we speak, seek the spectacular, we're, we're hoping for an emotional experience more than just to be touched by the hand and the heart and the tongue of God. So he wants us to 
seek him. I'm sorry for that long answer, Greg. I really appreciate your kindness. No, it, it's an appropriate answer, and I think it also puts things in perspective, and that is to recognize, too, that we serve a holy and righteous God. Amen. Um, <laughs> Amen. That, I'm really serious. That, that, that sense of, and I think we've, we've, we've lost this in, in the modern-day world, that, that sense of, for example, what it meant to be a priest to enter into the holy of holies. Right, right. And that tremendous sense of, of respect and reverence to realize that the priest was entering into the very presence of God. Uh, people forget that so much so, um, and, and Catholics listening will appreciate this, um, a bell is rung uh, during the consecration of the host uh, during Mass. And um, a bell was also um, uh, part of uh, what happened during the, the sacrifice that would take place inside of the Holy of Holies. And a rope was tied around the ankle of the priest. Absolutely. Should, should the pe- priest be found with sin and God's strike him dead as being unfit to be in his presence and to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel so that they could literally pull the priest out. Because if they went in there, they would be struck. Exactly right. So I think we've <laughs> lost that sense of, of, of awe in the presence of God and in realizing that God doesn't have to raise his voice to us. He is God. Well, and you know, the one time that God did handwriting on the wall... Gene, we all talk about it, just about handwriting on the wall. The one time God wrote on the wall, the message basically was, King Belshazzar, you're going to die tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I think I can live without handwriting on the wall tonight. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. And the other notion here, too, and I learned this years ago in in debate, um, we have a tendency as human beings, uh, we saw this uh, just last night, you'll probably see it again on Sunday during the debates, as we're trying to, out of frustration, get our point across, we tend to think if we raise our voices, you'll hear us. Yeah, right. And yet, I learned many, many years ago that if you really want to get the most important point across, don't raise your voice. Instead, lower your voice. And people will lean in and pay more attention. And I think perhaps God is using the same principle with us. He wants us to pay attention, to recognize who he is in the splendor and glory of all of his grace and righteousness and holiness, and realize that he does care. And not only does he care, not only does he want to hear from us, but he also wants us to hear from him as we engage in that that dialogue or that conversation, uh, as you call it in the title of the book, Samuel, so that in and through that, uh, we can not only recognize his voice, but also walk in a deeper level of fellowship and pure relationship with Tim that perhaps a lot of us have never never taken it to that level, never really experienced. I agree with you completely. I, I, you know, Christianity is about relationship. And, and relationship, the heart and soul relationship is really the normal life. It's, it's not, the spectacular is great. I, you know, don't, don't, don't deny me any of the spectacular. But the heart and soul of a relationship is just the normal, everyday, faithful talking and being together. And, and really, that's what makes life rich. And I think that's what God is inviting us into. I, I believe God wants us to hear his voice every day. Almost every day. There's, there's times where he might be silent because he can't tell us something. But I, I really believe that God has something for us. And that, as you're talking about, he wants, a, he wants us to be able to enter into the Holy of Holies because the the temple curtain was torn. That's right. So that we can enter back into a relationship with him that, that was lost in the Garden of Eden. 
And, you know, we can probably talk to a lot of wives out there who would say their husbands never learn to listen, and perhaps vice versa. Uh, God, I think. Please don't call my wife. <laughs> She's online too, you say? I'm sorry. Uh, I, I think, though, that, that, that we can also uh, learn a lot from that, that, that God perhaps would observe that we've never learned to listen to Him. We talk a lot about wanting to hear from God, but do we really want to hear from God? Do we want to not only be vulnerable at that level, but take the time to walk in the fellowship and to have have the kind of of intimacy with God that he really wants, not only of us, but for us. It's a compelling read and can be a life-changing one for you. Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere. Newly published by Kriegel Publishers, you'll find it available available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, and at Samuel's website, beliefsoftheheart.com. That's beliefsoftheheart.com. And our thanks to Samuel Williamson for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.